Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good morning, everybody. My name is Griffith, and I am the School Partnerships Manager here at the Commonwealth Club. We're extremely excited to host you all here today. For those of you who don't know the Commonwealth Club or have never been here before, we are the oldest and largest nonpartisan public affairs forum in the U.S. We were founded in 1903, and every year we host hundreds of programs with leaders and influencers talking about many different topics, ranging from politics to education, climate to social justice, entertainment, culture, and more. We have lots of options for students and educators, including low-cost memberships and free tickets. Creating Citizens is the Commonwealth Club's civics education initiative, building on foundational values of civility, mutual respect, and informed action. We are grateful to the Corette Foundation for their generous support of Creating Citizens and their dedication to improving the quality of civics education. Okay, let me introduce our speakers. First, City Council Member Janani Ramachandran represents Oakland's 4th District. As a public interest attorney, she has dedicated her life to empowering communities and fighting for responsive government institutions. An East Bay native, she's the youngest person elected to Oakland City Council. She's also the first South Asian and first LGBTQ plus woman of color to serve on the Oakland City Council. Our other panelist is City Council Member James Coleman, who represents South San Francisco's 4th District. A lifelong resident of South San Francisco, Coleman was elected in 2020, becoming the city's youngest and first openly LGBTQ plus member of the city council. He's passionate about improving early childhood education, addressing climate change, and making South San Francisco a safe and affordable and enjoyable place to live. Joining our panelists on stage will be our moderator, Dr. Stephen Morris. Dr. Morris has spent over 20 years in public education as a teacher, as a principal, and as a superintendent in traditional public schools, charter schools, and private schools. Dr. Morris is the co-founder and CEO of the Civic Education Center based in Fresno. The Civic Education Center focuses on training students and teachers in the art of civic dialogue and relevant civic service learning projects. So please join me in welcoming Councilmember Ramachandran, Councilmember Coleman, and Dr. Morris to the stage. Well, thank you all for being here and joining us today. I know you got out of school, so that makes it special. But what makes it even more fun is that you're here and you get to hear from a couple of people who have decided that change was necessary in their communities. And you hear that a lot and you begin to wonder, how can I make change? What does my voice matter when it comes to things that we're dealing with in our society? Big issues on understanding mental health, depression, suicide, big issues in understanding how do we treat LGBTQ plus community members the same as all of us. How do we deal with racism? What does my voice have to do with environment? Well, I love it because you're in a place that deals with that. The Commonwealth Club has this history, almost a decade, oh, uh, more, 10 decades, a <laughs> hundred years of bringing voice and opinion to America, making us aware of the differences of opinion and helping build our democracy by giving us informed voices to share about the differences we all have. Unfortunately, today, that idea of democracy gets lost in politics. The partisanship of it, uh, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or you're nothing. But we lose the real meaning of what it is to be in a democratic country where the people's voice is the critical issue behind it. And the people's voice has to be one that is diverse. The national motto is e pluribus unum. Out of many, we become one. 
And sure, we had a group of white men that wore wigs that were our founding fathers, and they decimated Native American tribes and had slaves, and they didn't give women the right to vote. But in that system, in that constitutional declaration of independence, they created this possibility to to make change happen. And it was called the voice of the people. That voice brought us to a civil war where we lost almost 700,000 people fighting over this idea of equality. Women got to write the vote in 1921 after a fierce battle. And some of them were imprisoned and put in jail because women needed to have the right to vote. We're still dealing with issues with Native American tribes, dealing with issues with our environment, but now it's your turn. What do you want to do with this democracy? And you're in a place now where your voice is super critical. If you don't sense the importance of it, then you're missing an opportunity to change, to really reform our country. I grew up in the 60s, civil rights era, and everybody knows about Dr. Martin Luther King. Yay! And he did a good thing. It was really cool, right? But we forget that he fought based on American principles, principles you find in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. He fought for equality for everyone, regardless of ethnicity, gender, identity. He fought for that. Malcolm X, a lot of people like to quote, you know, um, by any means necessary. He believed in a speech, the bullet to ballots, that the important thing for us to do is to vote, to create change. He fought that. For that, Frederick Douglass in the 1860s talked about the idea of America not being his if it is not going to follow its own principles. So today we're here in a divided society, democratic society, with the opportunity to create change. And we have some cool panel members today. They're going to talk about their lives and what gave them the motivation to create change. And they're, they're not much older than you guys. Um, and when they were in high school, in fact, uh, Councilmember Coleman was in high school and was here talking, you know, back in 2017. And now he's in this position. And uh, Councilmember Ramachanian is going to be sharing some things, too, from her past and in Oakland. What made her decide to get involved in this and, and decide to create something where all voices are heard? So I'm excited about what you're going to hear today. I'm excited that you're here. And I hope you guys have some really good questions for us. To, to put us in a position to ask them uh, the questions that you always wondered about. Can I really do something? Does my voice really matter? It does matter. And the Commonwealth Club is giving you that opportunity today. So one more time, let's welcome our guest speakers, the council members that are here today. <laughs> I love this. So I think we'll start with James. He's shaking up here. So no, he's just kidding. He's not. <laughs> We're going to start with him, and then we'll come to you, council member, and let you share just kind of an opening, a little bit about you know why you're here. Why did you choose to come here today, and what do you hope to see out of today? Yeah. Good morning, everyone. It's so nice to see all of you. It's you know it was only a few years ago where I saw myself as a high school student, uh, just like many of you, looking to looking for ways to get involved in in politics and in advocacy. Uh, because we see so many problems in the world around us. We see so many families struggling. And when we look at the issues that affect the younger generation, right, climate change, we're going to be the ones growing our families uh, in the midst of the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the affordable housing crisis, how are we going to afford to purchase a home when we move out? When it comes to college affordability, making sure we don't have, you know, tens and tens of thousands of, of student debt, 
uh, for pursuing higher education, it's our generation that is going to bear the brunt of these crises, and it has to be our generation who also has a hand in uh, finding the solutions as well. Very good. Thank you, James, for sharing that. Councilmember Ramachandran, and if I don't say it right, you help me. <laughs> that was very close. Uh, Ramachandran. Ramachandran, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation to be here. I really apologize I'm not able to be there in person today, but um, it is really an honor to be able to speak to young leaders, young change makers about the unlimited possibilities that we all hold, really. Um, so you asked me several years ago if I ever thought that I would be on Oakland City Council and Oakland's youngest city council member. I would have thought you're talking crazy. Um, to me, I want to do everything I can to encourage young people to dream big, dream bold, and recognize that elected office or any other form of political leadership is very much possible at any age with any type of background. And um, today I'm here to listen and learn and uh, share whatever I can. Thank you so much for being here. And we love your kitty also. He comes up every now and then. Yeah, this is Kaya. <laughs> and I hope you're feeling better and get well soon. Okay, thank you. So uh, one of the first things I want to ask you guys, we talked a little bit about, but expound some on why you chose this. What were you thinking in high school? And, and this is for you also, council member. What were you doing in high school that made you think that someday I'm going to run for office? Or did you even think that? Because things yeah. are just crazy. So you can go first, council member. Yeah. You know, when I was, so I grew up in the Bay Area. I was born in Fremont and I lived there till high school. And then in high school, I actually moved to India for, um, for about four years and that change from moving to a totally different system of government, a totally different system of uh, political ongoings was really a shock to me. Um, at the time, George W. Bush was president and America was perceived in a very different way. So my move to India really was in some way planned. One day I might want to think bigger and be involved in some of these systems and structures in the way that our government is and the way that we're perceived and the way that we operate at home and globally. Um, so I started to think about that in high school. I did a summer program called Junior Statesman of America, JSA. Mm -hmm. Some of you might be familiar with that. <laughs> I did a summer program um, in Washington, D.C., which exposed me to what political careers could actually look like. It was between my junior and senior year. And I thought, this is interesting. I'm not sure I want to do politics, but I'm glad I had this exposure. And then throughout college, you know, I had, I thought the world had a lot of different opportunities. And I, I really wasn't quite sure that I wanted to be involved in politics through the role of being an elected official. But I did know from an early age that I wanted to be involved in public service. When I lived in India in high school, I started my first nonprofit, which set up um, a series of mobile lending libraries to under-resourced schools in my neighborhood. And the process of, you know, collecting books and raising money and setting up these small libraries in 15 different schools, conducting reading sessions with kids, all of this was the number one signal to me that I'm not quite sure what I want to do with my future, but I know that it definitely has to involve public service in some capacity. 
Um, so then, you know, fast forward a few years, the pandemic hits <laughs> and um, I was just graduating law school at the time. Um, May 2020, uh, I've graduated Berkeley Law on Zoom and really thought twice about the field that I wanted to enter. Um, I, at the time, was planning to do family law and domestic violence law at one of our local nonprofits here in Oakland. And I thought this was incredibly meaningful work. I was really inspired by a lot of the grassroots organizations that were serving our community, whether it's through case management, legal representation, direct social services. All of this was something that uh, really struck me. And pardon me for jumping all over the place, but I want to zoom out a little bit for a second about why that direct services experience was so important to me. So uh, a few years prior, in when I graduated college in 2014, um, I went to Stanford, studied international relations, and decided that um, you know, I want to go to DC. I remember that one summer program where I was exposed to all these careers. I'd spent a little time in DC during inter doing internships in college. I worked for the uh, State Department for a summer. I did a couple of independent research projects on US foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, let's go save the world from a policy perspective, <laughs> um, sitting in a little white cubicle in Washington, DC. Yeah. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Washington, D.C., in my first job out of college was not what I expected. And here I am wanting to think about doing all these macro level policies and creating change at all of these international development organizations. And here I am doing very basic administrative work in an office environment that really didn't suit me and my needs. Um, Interestingly, it was also the first environment, the environment where I faced the highest level of racism that I have, I think, in my entire life up until that point. And I realized that I wanted to surround myself with people that genuinely cared about the people around them and making an impact. That public service thread really came back to me strong. (laughs) So I quit my first job out of college in four (laughs) months and decided to do something that had more of a tangible impact that I could see around me. Mm-hmm. So I ended up working at a um, at a local community health clinic. I ended up doing home visiting services for pregnant mothers, um, and specifically those who were survivors of domestic violence mm-hmm. in the DC area for a few years. And that micro level direct social services work was what really connected me to the community and made me think about the broader institutions and specifically how Mm. they were harming so many of our communities Mm. on the basis of racism, sexism, xenophobia, homophobia. It all came together in such a tangible way when I was entering the homes of so many people that were struggling with these incredibly oppressive institutions. Mm. So that Mm. led me to go to law school and think more about those systems and learn more about them so that one day I could be a part of changing them. You know, sometimes you got to bend and break the rules to make them work for <laughs> people of color, for people from different backgrounds. And that's what I went to law school to study. Hmm. And then the pandemic hit. And that's when my perspective changed once again, from wanting to do that micro level direct social services work and pivot back into the more macro policy level systems level change, because at that point, I felt that I was ready. I felt that I had several years of experience doing on the ground work, Mm -hmm. both from my own personal, uh, personal background, as well as the communities that I was serving. And I was ready to dive into this leadership level to make change because 
we needed it. Mm -hmm. I was listening to some of our elected leaders during the pandemic and felt that none of them had a bird's eye, none of them had a direct grassroots level experience of what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. So many of our elected leaders had been sitting in these elected posts for such a long time that they lost sight of what the people actually want, what they believe, mm -hmm. and so much more. But I will pause there before going <laughs> too far into how specifically I got into politics and let James take the reins. No, I, I love it. And I love that you brought up this fact that you saw it from both levels. You saw a system at work and you saw what was that system, how it was impacting people. And I think sometimes we forget that you guys are in school today and you, you are in a system in school that sometimes you feel doesn't meet your needs um, because you're dealing with other students. I think that's one of the greatest strengths that you have, understanding your system, as council member was sharing, but also understanding the needs of your classmates and working together to produce change is a powerful thing. Council member James, talk to us. Tell us a little bit what got you into this. Yeah, so I think from an early age, I've always felt like I wanted to make an impact uh, in the community. It, really stems from my family. When mm -hmm. I was five years old, uh, my father suffered a traumatic injury. He fell down the stairs and was left paralyzed and waist down. And my mother had to take two jobs in order to make ends meet as well as sharing in the care of my father. Mm -hmm. And so growing up, it made me want to, one, study biology, become a doctor so that I can help people heal from traumatic injuries, but two, study how we can make our government work for all of us and make sure mm -hmm. that no family uh, such as my own um, when I was young, you know, falls through the cracks. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, growing up, I started getting civically engaged in high school, just like all of you. <laughs> um, I got involved in my high school's Earth Club. Uh, I was a part of the Alliance for Climate Education, doing climate change advocacy. Uh, and then I was fortunate enough to go to Harvard uh, College, uh, where I did study biology and government. And I was a pre-med student nice. uh, way back then. But when COVID hit, everything just kind of <clears throat> went upended, right? Yeah. I had never planned to be in elected office. It was always seen as a hobby, right? Like I would volunteer for candidates. I'd go to these protests and rallies and you know, just support in, in my uh, capacity as a volunteer. Uh, but when COVID happened, I was evacuated off of campus. I returned all the way back to South San Francisco where I was born and raised. Um, and then the murder of George Floyd happened. Mm -hmm. And we mm -hmm. looked inwards in South San Francisco. You know, a lot of my friends and I, we were back home from college. We, we looked at South San Francisco and we saw that we were not immune to the public health crisis of systemic racism. Uh, in 2012, a 15-year-old black student named Derek Gaines was mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, killed by our local South San Francisco Police Department. And there had largely been no accountability or justice to that case. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of young people and I really, really took the national fervor and energy for public safety reform. We went to our city council meetings and we demanded change and, and accountability. Mm -hmm. But what had happened was the mayor at the time in South San Francisco, he decided because of COVID and, and because there were 150 people showing up to council meetings, he didn't want to hear to the voices. He didn't want to hear the voices of young people. Wow. So he shut down public comment. Wow. He didn't want to hear it. So wow. essentially 150 public commenters, including myself, many of us were young people getting involved in local politics for the first time in our lives. We were silenced by the old mayor. And when that happened, we knew we had to hold our elected leaders accountable. Um, I decided to, you know, on a whim to drop my thesis in college <laughs> uh, and announce a run for city council. 
and you know, through a grassroots campaign, through a campaign that was all volunteer run, all run by young people in high school and in college, we were able to unseat an 18-year incumbent, and I became the city's youngest ever and first openly queer uh, council member. Wow, fantastic. Thank you. Wow. 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 I'll tell you, I, I'm real impressed by both your stories and your histories. Both of you encountered situations when you were younger that brought you face-to-face with a system that, although meant for good, was failing dramatically. And something had to be done about that. We, we're coming up now on a big presidential election in our country, right? And everybody is out, and all the, the politics are out. How do you... Each one of you, and we'll ask, give you each chance to ask. Maybe we'll start with James and go to you, council member. Um, how do each one of you deal with the politics and the need for change? Where do you find yourself in the midst of fervent belief and trying to create a consensus that builds change in a democratic society? How do you do that, especially in this highly partisan age that we're in? Yeah, I think luckily... <laughs> Fortunately, at the local level and at the state level, there's a lot more collaboration going on than at the federal level. Mm. I mean, Congress, with a majority of Republicans, have been spending weeks trying to find a Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if they don't have a Speaker of the House, they cannot pass bills and legislation. And still, we have all these crises that we're facing, all these issues that need to be solved. But fortunately, at the local and the state level, we are seeing bills getting passed. We are seeing bills being signed by our governor. At the local level, we are seeing you know, affordable housing being built. And I would say it needs to be built faster, but it's, you know, <laughs> things are being passed. And it's important that you know, we have the ability to stay true to our beliefs, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to realize that our communities are full of a diverse set of perspectives, and to, to meet in the middle to make sure that we are continuing to move forward and find the solutions that will improve the lives of, of everyone around us. Hmm. You know, a quick question, and council member, come in if you can. Um, you, you talked about those diverse voices. I mean, you have Democrats, you have Republicans, you have business people, you have community people, you have educators, you have students, you have parents. How do you bring them together to help push them into a, a change that's good for everyone, given all this change, the diversity and difference in voices. Talk to me about me? that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it starts with making sure that everyone has a voice, mm. right? Mm. The reason why I ran was because young people were getting their voice taken away from them. And it means setting up public meetings. It means having processes where people can, can come in person and talk to you face-to-face, where they can, uh, you know, if if there's for some reason they can't be at a public meeting and a lot of people work full-time jobs mm-hmm. um, and they can't, you know, they might not have access to transportation, maybe they're disabled, you know, and so, or raising a family and children and so on, and just making sure that they have the ability to participate remotely as well, um, whether it be through sending emails or, or giving public comment live uh, through Zoom or some other function. It's mm-hmm. making sure that we have that public process available and accessible to all, especially language access. That's very important mm-hmm. too, making mm-hmm. sure that um, our systems are accessible to those who speak Chinese and, and Spanish and so on. Yeah, very cool. Uh, Councilmember Johnny, talk to us about how do you deal with this political partisanship and this division that we have going on right now to produce change? Absolutely. And I think I want to start off with 
going back a little to some of the reasons why I ran because of this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, pandemic hit a few months later, I'm starting to think about running for um, California State Assembly. There was an open seat at the time in my district in a special election. And when one of the factors that really, really drove me to want to do this even more was the fact that people told me, no, don't do it. Hmm. You're too young. You're too inexperienced. You don't have the money. You don't have the political leverage or connections. Essentially, people were telling me that you're a nobody. You shouldn't be at this table. Hmm. And that really struck me because if people like me didn't have a seat at the table and our voices weren't represented in government, whose was? Mm -hmm. Whose interests were actually represented? Um, and you shouldn't have to have the kind of extensive traditional political resume and connections and money to be able to do this. And so what gave me hope and what continues to give me hope today and the ability to you know, form consensus, like you said, was in this special election that I ran, um, I was one of the only people who ran. I was the only person who ran in a seat of eight in a, um, in a contestant pool of eight people that was not already an elected official because this was a state seat. Typically, we already had other elected officials from different cities running for state assembly. Mm -hmm. And um, somehow I still made it to the runoff. <laughs> I made it to the top two. Um against uh, now Mia Banta, who, is, who, who did win the seat in the runoff, who um, is the wife of our current attorney general, Rob Banta. Mm. And people told me, you are crazy to run against the, our state attorney general's wife. Yes. How are you going to go up against a political dynasty? This is a family with a lot of connections, of power. They've been in power for so many years. You're going up against the, the establishment. And to me, that was yet again part of the whole point. We need to be injecting more diverse voices into our political systems. And what really gave me hope was despite going up against that power and that money, I was outspent by $2 million in that state assembly race. Wow. We still got 44% of the vote. Wow. And to wow. me, that's a good thing. That yeah. show... Right? Equal voice. <laughs> wow. Wow. To me, the number one thing that that showed was that people, ordinary people voting at the polls are ready for something different. Mm. And even to this day, what gives me hope about the ability to form consensus and make decisions that's guided by the, by the voice of the people is staying true to my constituent needs. Mm. I've been in office now for a little over 10 months, and a lot of people are confused and want to put me in a box of, is she representative of this group? Is she representative of that group? Huh. And, uh -huh. you know, what box does she fit under? Who's, who's bankrolling her? Who's telling her how to vote and what to say? And what confuses a lot of these so-called political experts is that I am independently I thinking yeah. about the needs of my constituents. Every single week, I am hosting neighborhood meet and greet sessions in people's backyards, in cul-de-sacs, at a park, local businesses to make sure that I'm hearing from a diversity of perspectives. I hold Zoom office hours every single Saturday. I'm at any any event that neighbors, neighbors invite me to, whether it's um, a retirement party or an 80th birthday or, or a baby shower, whatever that people want to invite me to or, or stores grand opening. 
I'm there trying to listen to the voices of actual residents. And to me, that holds the key to being able to have policies decided by people's actual voices. Mm -hmm. In my campaign, I knocked on 20,000 doors personally, and that gave me uh, the ground, the most ground level view of hearing what people had to say. And it really reminded me of some of the experience that shaped the earlier part of my career when I did home visiting services. I mentioned that I worked at a community health clinic and I went into the homes of pregnant women, and it almost felt like a similar thread of here I am at people's doorsteps. Maybe they don't want to talk to a stranger, but usually people do. They're surprised to see someone actually at their door. And I know James was very good at this as well, as far <laughs> as grassroots, meet people where they're at mm -hmm. strategy, because we're candidates that didn't have the big money to back us up in some of these races and still prevailed because we were listening to people at their doorsteps. And right now on city council, that's what I continue to do. And I am thrilled with the fact that some of these political experts continue to be confused about, you know, who's, who am I controlled by, which organization or group or entity is, you know, funding me or telling me how to vote. And I'm like, nope, the people are telling me how I should vote and they're guiding my decisions first and foremost. That is so cool. That is so cool. Give her a hand with that. That's awesome. So, James, looks like you wanted to comment. Did you want to add to that? Uh, I think she stated it so well. I mean, it has yeah. to be grassroots and it has to be for the people, right? Yes. Because who elects us? The people. Yeah. And so we are accountable to the people. And it's, it's just so important to have that, what I call, ear to the ground, yes. where you are constantly talking to neighbors, to everyday average people, not you know lobbyists, right? Uh, and just hearing, like, what are they thinking about? And chances are they're thinking about having a stop sign in their neighborhood or mm -hmm. a pothole mm -hmm. fixed or a sidewalk that is a tripping hazard fix or improving the basketball courts at their local park. Like it is those bread and butter issues that people care about. And, uh, you know, as opposed to Congress, you know, as local council members, mm -hmm. we can get that done quickly mm. and people, you can see the impact happen. Mm. That's what I appreciate the most about local office. That is so cool. I, I like both of you guys are talking about this idea of moving away from boxes that are traditional of a system that identifies you or forces you into a, a political perspective. Now, we've talked about listening to the voice of the people. In our society, we also have business, corporations, and institutions. How do you guys work with those groups of people that have the money, that have the positions, that, that want the boxes checked? Because they're also part of your constituency, right? So what do you do with that situation? Uh, Johnny, we'll start with you. Sure. So I will start by saying that I know both James and I were corporate money free candidates, which means that in the course of elections, um, you know, I did not accept contributions from um, any corporations. Um, mm -hmm. That being said, and, and that's important to me, because, again, when you have corporations treated as people and being able to donate large sums of money, you're then erasing the voices of actual people and residents. And to me, that it that was and continues to be an important value when it comes to campaigning and elections and who is deciding who gets into office and, and who doesn't. Um, because, you know, both of us certainly ran up against a lot of corporate money from our opponents being supported by by that. So that continues to be very important for me. At the same time, 
Um, one of the things that's incredibly important to what I'm doing on council is supporting our small business communities. Mm -hmm. um, Oakland is a city that, mm -hmm. you know, our culture, so much of what makes Oakland, Oakland is determined by having these incredible small businesses that make up our community's fabric, whether that's incredible restaurants or um, art and music stores or, you know, um, shopping districts. We have so many small business corridors in Oakland. Um, Oakland has about 450,000 residents. My district, District 4, has about 65,000. And we have, just in my district alone, four thriving small business corridors. Wow. And so the, the interests of our small businesses sometimes are, are certainly not the same as big industry and big mm -hmm, box businesses mm -hmm. and some of the ones with that political influence. It's a lot of the small business voices that also don't get a say in the political process in the same way. So to me, when we think about some of the big issues, it's interconnected mm -hmm. with our economic needs. Mm -hmm. We want, In order to address public safety, which is a huge issue for a lot of us right now, we have to make sure that we're employing young Oaklanders in local businesses. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that these mom and pop businesses, whether it's a florist or laundromat or um, you know, a local food store, we want to make sure that they're able to stay in business because most of them are run by local Oakland residents who've been in the neighborhood for decades, if not generations. Um, and that contributes to making sure that we have walkable business corridors. Mm -hmm. The more that people are able to mm -hmm. walk to their small businesses and feel safe using public transit and bike and walking, the more people they're going to be out and about. And the more humans you have walking in a neighborhood, being those eyes and ears on the street for one another, the safer our neighborhoods become. So when I think about some of our economic needs and um, especially that of small businesses, I think about that being integral to what the community cares about as a whole. Mm -hmm. What puts Oakland on the map for all the right reasons, our culture, our food, our history, our dance, our music, so much of that is tied into supporting our small businesses, um, our arts community, our entrepreneurs. And I want to make sure that we're continuing to sustain that. And not everything has to be at odds with, with one another. And I think we can come to the table with a mindset that helps one another and sees, you know, um, the small business community and, and largely the business community as a part and parcel of a, of a whole system. So I hear what you're saying. I want to ask a question before I turn to James. So do you find the large business partners uh, motivated to contribute because the number of people that are involved or because they have an agenda that they want to insist on? And how do you work with that? Since I, I know small business is very critical to our economy, in fact, to the world economy. So what do you do with these big guys, you know, they're sitting out there? Yeah, um, I have to say Oakland is a little different. You know, we have a chamber of commerce. We definitely have interest from some of the big corporations represented, but um, Oakland is not quite San Francisco. It's not mm. quite San Jose. It's not mm. quite, you know, the South Bay where you have a lot of big tech companies and their interests being represented. Oakland doesn't quite have as much of that right now at the moment. We have a few big corporations um, and I do see some of them, you know, changing their tune when it comes to wanting to be a part of Oakland's fabric rather than competing against them. Mm. You know, we have Kaiser's headquarters, for example, we have a couple, a couple of uh, financial tech com companies and startups and 
I see them perhaps, you know, certainly changing their tune over the years because this is Oakland. The people are always going to protest the big box companies taking their lion's share of resources. And I feel like many of those big companies are trying to align with the needs of small businesses more and more, as well as that with community calls for action. And I know this is not the case in all cities, but um, I don't see, it's not necessarily always a battle. And and sometimes it is. Mm -hmm. And I will say, you know, one example um, of a success story, I think in the last few years in Oakland was getting a progressive business tax. And this, Mm -hmm. we just voted on that um, uh, fairly recently, last year in November. And one of the, the purposes of a progressive business tax is that you have companies of varying sizes and scale pay a specific city tax based on the revenues that they're making, Mm -hmm. which for small businesses means they don't have to shell out a lion's share, a disproportionate amount of their resources into the city tax, but some of the bigger companies actually do. And what data proves, what data has shown, a lot of people post-pandemic have been really nervous about well, you know, we have so many empty storefronts and some of the big companies are leaving Oakland. How do we entice them to stay in Oakland? And, you know, taxes are just going to drive them away. But we actually have a lot of studies from the Goldman School of Public Policy, for example, down the street in Berkeley, that show that taxes are not necessarily the biggest driver for companies to come or leave a city like Oakland. It's other factors. It's how clean our streets are. It's how much we've addressed illegal dumping, homelessness, public safety. It's some of those other issues that really are more of a driver for whether or not businesses that do provide jobs to Oakland residents come or go, not necessarily taxes on their own. Mm -hmm. So what ended up happening was that our Chamber of Commerce, including some some of the individuals that represent big businesses, came to the table with some of our more social justice activists who wanted the tax and came to a compromise that ended up passing and is generating revenue for the city. So I think it's an example of how this can work and people can come to the table when you have um, a group of people and group of citizens that really are aligned with these goals. That's that's so powerful. I, I think that's what the whole point of democracy is. How do you get together and compromise? James, South San Francisco, you guys got the airport out there. I mean, that's big business. Talk to me. Yeah, uh, South San Francisco is very unique in that we have the largest biotech sector at the municipality level in the entire country. Wow. And so, you know, we have Genentech, massive company, but we also have over 250 biotech companies, you know, ranging from small two-person startups to large, you know, thousand-employee corporations. Uh, And so we have a massive biotech sector. Uh, when I was, you know, even 20 years ago, growing up in South City, we only had a couple dozen biotech companies, and it's just exploded 10 times to, to what it is today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have such a favorable business environment, part of being, you know, part of Silicon Valley. Uh, and I'm okay with that, as long as they are also giving back to the community. And I think that's very important, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. they are located in South San Francisco. They should be employing South San Francisco graduates and, con- and giving back and contributing to the entire fabric of South San Francisco, including you know their employees, um, giving business to our local small businesses and restaurants. Um, that that's extremely important. Um, the thing about South San Francisco also is our city um, took 
a vacant property, it used to be an old bank, and we leased it from the owner, and then we subleased it to Renaissance Entrepreneurship Center, which is a nonprofit that helps people start their small businesses. And, and if their businesses are, are having trouble, helps them get back on their feet. Um, and this is you know, similar to what Councilmember Ramachandran was saying, small businesses are truly the fabric of our communities. It is the restaurants, it is where you go uh, for the nightlife, mm -hmm. it is what you do for fun with friends and family on the weekends. You know, that is truly the fabric of what makes South City, South City. Um, and we have to make sure that there's an environment that uh, allows them to thrive and allows everyone in our city to, to enjoy what's, mm. what's here. That's powerful. I, I love what we're saying here. Uh, there was an incident where I was working with a group of students that were like 60% Latinx and maybe 10% African-American. The rest were white. And we had a white student, as we were talking about equality, say that he disagreed that the Civil War was about slavery. The kids in the class booed him, right? And I said, no, wait a minute. We're supposed to hear each other out, even difference of opinion. So they watched us as we engaged in a conversation about the Civil War. And at the end of the conversation, it probably lasted seven minutes, he said to me, he said, well, I guess I got to read some more. And I think that's the most profound thing that we can do to help people think differently than we do to educate themselves on something else. How do you guys handle it when, when people disagree? How do you work with people who disagree with each other? Uh, James will start with you, and then Johnny, we'll come back with you if that's okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they just disagree. Some what of you do? just disagree. What do you do? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the way I look at it is, you know, the reason, why is there disagreement, right? Mm, mm. And usually it's because of our different life experiences. Maybe it's a different media and the information that we consume. Um, and just taking a step back, you know, to, to find agreement on these positions, on these issues, we have to have a conversation, right? That's the most important mm -hmm, thing. Mm -hmm. And to come into that conversation with respect that's very important because yes. if you don't respect the, the other person, they're not going to listen so to true. you. So true. And to also come in there with an open mind because you, you have to realize that maybe your position isn't entirely correct, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Maybe there is a perspective that you're missing in your life experiences. Mm -hmm. And when you see two, two sides come together and talk with that open mind and mutual degree of respect, you can potentially get that person to change their mind or you can meet somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. And so in South San Francisco, I mean, we have a very diverse council, all with different life experiences from different uh, backgrounds, but so many of our votes are 5-0. Because even if we disagree, we find ways to meet in the middle. Even if we have three votes to pass a policy how we want it, sometimes we will still compromise with the other two people to meet in the middle because we respect each other mm. and we want to continue that good working relationship. Mm, very cool. Johnny, talk to us about this. When you, people just don't disagree and you're working with them, what do you do? Yeah, you know, this was something that surprised me a lot coming into this office because I felt that Oakland is thankfully a city and we also have a pretty diverse set of um, council members and represent other elected officials in our city. And, you know, for the most part, we're a pretty progressive city. We're a pretty left-leaning city that cares about social justice and civil rights and have a history of 
you know, positive resistance and, you know, positive change and have set an example for many cities across the state and country when it comes to reform and new ideas. And I'm, you know, and I'm grateful for that history. But for me, when it comes to disagreement on the dais, and we've had quite a few very, (laughs) very, very heated sessions, you know, for context, our meetings, you know, usually start at 3 p.m. and end at midnight or one in the morning every Tuesday. And, you know, we have at least 200 public commenters coming in and screaming and shouting at each other, at us. And it's often a zoo (laughs) at our meetings. And I'm grateful for participation, but... To me, when it comes to disagreeing with other elected officials and my colleagues, is what are we disagreeing on something of substance, on an mm-hmm. actual mm-hmm. policy mm-hmm. issue mm-hmm. based on, like what James said, our life experiences or our per- personal or professional backgrounds? Or are we disagreeing based on something different, which oftentimes is political alliances? Mm-hmm. And something more superficial. And what's been disappointing to me is to see that we've had relatively less disagreement on issues of substance and actual fundamentally different political viewpoints, but more disagreement when it comes to um the superficial alliances and who's friends with who. And often it feels like a high school mean girls club or (laughs) situations like that where decisions are not based on where we come from. But when it comes, and sometimes they do lack what James was saying, that fundamental level of basic human respect. Hmm. On the other hand, I have had disagreement, constructive disagreement, I guess I would say, Mm -hmm. with some of my constituent groups you know, from date, even throughout the campaign, including with groups of supporters that I met with, you know, I said, you might not always agree with every decision that I make, but what I will promise to you is to give you utmost level of transparency Mm -hmm. and explain why I voted the way I did and be actively engaging with you in conversation to make sure that I can hear your agreement or disagreement and we can have constructive dialogue. And I'm happy to say that sometimes, you know, conversations can certainly get heated with different um, organizations and groups of my constituents. But at the end of the day, as long as I'm coming from a place of transparency and they're coming from a place with respect as well, I strongly believe that we will be able to at least understand each other's perspective and respect one another for where that where we're coming from. It's powerful, powerful. Uh, I, I know we're going to switch in just a little bit, but I hope you heard that in both council members talking about this idea of finding common ground. It sounds kind of like the building that we're in, the Commonwealth Club. What do we share that matches someone else? And what we share, is it fundamental to our beliefs, to who we are? to how we feel about things work in this country. And now, based on those fundamental things, I respect you, right? I disagree with you, but how can we talk about now producing change? So when you're in school and you're talking with people at different, don't be afraid of conflict. Find common ground. And teachers that are here, thank you for bringing your students. I would encourage you to read Langston Hughes' poem, Let America Be America Again, and find out what's he really talking about in there and looking for common ground in America to produce change. So I, I think I'm running a little over, Griffith. Um, we have, this is your opportunity now. You heard these two cool people talk about awesome things that they were facing, 
why they chose to get involved in politics, kind of their heart's desire to produce something better for everyone. I'm going to give you a chance to ask them any question you want, except, except one question, what are their pets' names if they have pets? No, don't. <laughs> but no, just what is on your heart today? I mean, you're, you're in classes, your teacher telling you about these issues, you hear about them, you read about them. Um, we have a horrible war going on in our world now where um, it's just atrocities that are occurring on. Our democracy is facing a, a divided, divisive presidential election, and you are in school, and you're dealing with issues on poverty, homelessness, domestic violence, abuse, mental health issues. How do you produce change? And I'm going to encourage you to come up right now. The microphone's right there. And just ask them a question. What's on your heart? What's on your mind? We got one coming up right now with that. Anybody else uh, want to think about it? Yeah, give them a hand over there. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Just line up right over there. We got, we got, we got time. This is your voice now. All right. Thank you guys for coming forward like that. And as they're talking, if others of you think, as long as we have time, I encourage you to go up. Okay, your turn. You got, you got the mic. Um, just do a quick oh, little question. Before questions. you do, can you just tell us your name and where you're from? Oh, hi, I'm Gray, and I'm from LPS Richmond. Cool. Thank and you. And two um, small questions that I had. One is, would you run higher in a position of office? And second would be, how do you find common ground with someone that you actually, like, genuinely don't agree with oh wow okay yeah so the first one it was office higher office and the second was genuinely looking for common ground okay which one of us go first i'll leave it up to you guys i could start go for sure. it James. Uh, so actually johnny and i both ran for state assembly um unsuccessfully but we're still here but i think that goes to show that we do want to run for higher office and kind of have that macro level uh policy uh decision power, decision-making power um, at the state level. And I think the state level is a very exciting place to be. I actually work for a state assembly member, uh, assembly member Alex Lee, who represents Southern Alameda County and Santa Clara County. Um, and it's, it's really great to see all the progress that the state of California is making. Um, and then the second question was... How do you genuinely find common ground? Like, genuinely find common ground. I mean, sometimes it's tough. Right. Sometimes it's really tough, but sometimes you have to agree to disagree and move on. Right. Because we might agree on 90 percent of the issues, but there's one issue that we disagree on. But should that one issue hinder progress for the other 100 issues? I don't think so. And so just in the interest of continuing to make progress, we have to agree to disagree sometimes. Jenny, you got it. Thank you, James. Good, good, good. Very good. Well, neither James or I are qualified age-wise to run for president yet because really? you have to be 35, but talk to us in a few years and you know, <laughs> for. Love it. Um, on the issue of, um, you know, finding common ground, I think it, I think it's also, it's sometimes remembering that people are having a bad day. Mm. And even if they're screaming and shouting at you on the dais or saying very mean things about you on Twitter or whatever it is, I think it's coming from a place of empathy and remembering that we're all human mm. and maybe there's something else in their lives that caused them to take it out on you. And, you know, I, it, I acknowledge that it hurts if someone's being very disrespectful towards me or spreading mistruths or whatnot. But when it comes to it, it's like what James said, you know, you take it issue by issue 
And because I'm not here for my own ego, but I'm here to serve my mm. constituents and the people of Oakland, it's trying to put that first. And sometimes that means taking, you know, um, swallowing your pride or taking a big <laughs> ego chill pill, a bunch of deep breaths and moving on and taking the next issue on a blank slate. And that is what I'm, and it, it's, it's a hard thing to do. It's easy to say, and it's genuinely hard to do because we're people with feelings, um, of course, but it's something that I definitely strive to do every day. Very good. Thank you. Next. Thank you very much for your question. Hi, my name is Ivan. I'm from Encinal High School. Yeah. And um, my question is, you guys both spoke about um, a bit how you guys aren't, you guys don't accept corporate donations. So how do voters know that you are a candidate who refuses corporate do money? And I was like, since this information is so important to voters, how would it be for voters to find that information? Okay. So uh, this idea of corporate donations and how do you remain a so it doesn't affect your policies, and how do you let your constituents know, right? Yes. Okay, cool. Okay, Jenny, you want to start this one, then we'll go to James? Sure. Well, first and foremost, on my website, um, I've always had a very clear indication that says no corporate contributions accepted. You know, um, we're, a we're a movement powered by the people. And in every campaign message, every speech, every debate that I participated in, I would make it clear that I am getting anything powering my campaign is coming from the people, which then means that candidates like us have to spend a lot of time fundraising through other means. It's very easy to accept a $10,000 check from a corporation and very hard to raise that same $10,000 off of small donor contributions. And you have to spend, unfortunately, hours and hours on the phone every single day dialing for dollars, asking every single person you know, hey, could you uh, contribute $50? Could you contribute $100? Could you, you know, ask 10 family and friends if they can contribute $25 each? And that takes a lot of work. But grassroots campaigns still do need money. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have to ask a lot more people for a little bit amount of money if you're not taking the big corporate checks. But it is ultimately worth it. And it's difficult. It's to tell someone um, to invest in me is it's hard work to sit and sit on the phone and say why you deserve, you know, someone's money. But you need to frame it as this is an investment into our shared future, something that, you know, your contributions to my campaign is not just to me as a person, but is to going towards this vision of a more equitable future where people can be able to run their campaigns. And, you know, for context, we have to raise a lot of money in my state assembly race, which was a special election. So it was only, you know, the entire start to finish was less than six months. Um, so it should technically be a lower budget campaign, but it was not. I raised $400,000. Um, and again, I want to go up against oh, $2, nice. uh, $2 million, but that was still the scale of a state assembly race. It was a little uh, smaller for my city council race, thankfully, um, but that's a lot of money that winning campaigns need to raise for many of these seats. In state assembly races across California, people are raising, um, you know, four or five plus million dollars, and it's really difficult to do that when you're not accepting corporate contributions, but it is possible. And we have a lot of success stories where people are doing it and continuing to do it. James, thank you. Thank you. 
Yeah, uh, put simply, we let them know. So like when we send mail, when we have flyers, when we're door knocking, when we're phone banking, and also on the website, we let people know that we're not taking a single dollar from corporations. And people really appreciate that because we are seeing right now so many corporations just funnel millions and millions of dollars into our political processes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, I'll be blunt, misinforming people about specific issues. I think at the very extreme side, you see fossil fuel companies you know, toss millions and millions of dollars to tell people that climate change doesn't exist, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> um, of course, there's a variety of corporations and, right, yeah. and different messaging that they employ. Um, but it's so important for us to, to cut through that noise, right? And I think, um, you know, Jenny and I, we raised, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars, but I do want to <laughs> state that Assemblymember Alex Lee, who was, uh, I believe, 24 at the time when he won his seat for a state assembly, he only raised $30,000. Hmm. And he was outspent by hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars by so many others, wow. but he was still able to prevail and win his seat in assembly. So it's very possible uh, to, to win these large seats with no corporate money. Very cool. All right, thank you very much for your question. Thank you. Can I go? Yes, you can. All right, hi, my name is Phoebe. I'm from Encinal High School. Hey. Um, so I just specifically had a question, you know, since this is about youth involvement. Yes. I had like, since you guys were, you know, our age once, and I'm assuming you guys got like, involved in more political spaces when you were young. What are some specific resources like in our age that we can go to specifically in our communities to foster our political voices and help our opinions be heard in our citizen governments? That's a really good question. May may I paraphrase it and say, what can they give advice they can give you or youth to prepare themselves to make a change through politics? Would that be correct? Yes. Okay. James, you start this one and then we'll go to Johnny. Yeah, I think don't be afraid to go out and you know pick an issue that you care about and seek an organization that has an impact on that issue, right? Look look for nonprofits at your city and school board levels. Look for youth commissions. Um, look for local democratic clubs and and other political organizations that are always looking for volunteers and passionate people. And the thing is, if one of those organizations does not exist guess what? You can start one, right? And so in high school, I started uh, my high school school newspaper. Mm-hmm. In college, I started an environmental organization and also joined a fossil fuel divestment movement that was successful. And so, you know, whenever there is a gap in the advocacy space that you see, you can be that first one to organize your community and, and advocate for that issue. Very powerful. Janine. Absolutely. I fully, fully echo that. Um, and wanted to add the value of, firstly, coming to city council and making public comment. Mm-hmm. Um, increasingly over, I think during the course of the pandemic is when we saw more young Oaklanders raise their voice at city council meetings. And we are slowly but surely seeing you know, more young people voice their opinion on issues that they care about. And this is powerful. City, you know, again, when we have these, you know, 10, 12 hour long council meetings and we're glued to our chair, young people coming to speak makes everyone stop what they're doing and listen mm-hmm. in a very different way. Because for the most part, I mean, for a lot of times, people who come to make public comment are part of different organized groups and are used to making public comment and are um, 
are accustomed to doing this. But when a young person comes to speak, they're there just because they care about the issue. There's no motivating, there's no money behind it. There's no people telling them they have to do it. People are coming on their own will. And that's very powerful to hear. The second thing I will suggest is looking up um, local boards and commissions. There are youth commissions at different city and county levels. In the city of Oakland, we have um, a youth commission as well as youth specific seats on some of our other boards and commissions. But I will also say, take the plunge and apply to a regular commission. When I was in law school a few years ago, um, I was interested in serving on a border commission. I had heard that they exist. And I remember applying to, I think, all of the 25 commissions that on the website said they had a vacancy. I didn't know a single person. This is actually only in, I think, 2019. I didn't know a single person that worked for Oakland city government or was involved in politics. I was completely fresh. And I applied to every single one of those commissions. Only one of them wrote back to me after me trying for many, many times. And then I applied and there were 40 applicants for the seat on the public ethics commission. Hmm. And I thought I'm here in law school. Most of these other 40 people applying to this seat are already experienced lawyers with political connections and whatnot. There's no way I'm going to get this. And I got a seat. Nice. And I think that goes to show that doesn't matter how old you are. If there's a seat available on a citizen run body, a border commission, go for it. And sometimes it's going to take work. Um, I also currently sit on the California State Commission for Asian and Pacific Islander American Affairs. I also uh, got on this around the same time where I was applying to every opportunity that was there at the state level because I wanted to be involved in something. And this was before I was seriously considering running for office. I just wanted to be a part of the process somehow. And sometimes it takes a little aggressive emailing and following up week after week it took me about a year to finally get the seat on the state API commission. And, you know, it happened. And I served with an amazing body of, you know, other folks who were appointed and who had, you know, political connections. And my voice um, was equally valued in that room once I got there. Um, and anyone can do it. Very cool. Is that, is that good? Yeah. All right. Thank you for your question. Appreciate that. Yes, you're, you're next, yeah. My name is Michelle, I'm from OPS. And my, my question is, so I'm assuming you both have a vision like for your community. In a sentence or two, could you tell me that vision and if you see it coming true? Oh, I love that vision question. That's very powerful. Johnny, would you like to start us on that vision question? Sure. Um, my vision has always been making sure that every single voice can be heard and that everyone feels like their voice more importantly matters. That's something that they're saying will actually be listened to by their elected officials. That someone who wants to get involved in politics can actually make it happen. Politics shouldn't be this, have this stone barrier and wall to entry. It should be an open gate that anyone can access and get in the building and have a seat at the table. And anything that I do in the course of my political career, I want to make sure that people had a voice because when I started off, people told me that I didn't. Well, one thing I didn't talk about in the course of my campaign was the incredible amount of um, 
sexism and racism that I experience as well. And sometimes they come across in subtle ways. We're in the, you know, I'm, I'm running in the East Bay and, you know, we say we value uh, the voices of queer people of color, of young people and whatnot. But when it comes to actually running, I was aggressively questioned for my educational background, my experience. I was asked questions that a white man would not have been asked in many circumstances. And that's something that in my vision for anyone being able to access these systems that I hope we chip away at and continue to call out and continue to erase. James, very good. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Could you repeat the question, please? A vision. Vision. What's your vision to get you into this? And vision. what do you want to see? Yeah. I see it. So I think the vision for South San Francisco is for every family to have a high degree of economic and political freedom, mm-hmm. that everyone is able to have a voice, that everyone is able to participate, that everyone is able to have a job, uh, to attain a higher education to live in a climate that isn't causing human suffering, Mm. that's able to afford a home and not have to give an arm and a leg to afford a home. Mm. Um, (laughs) You know, just making sure that that people are able to not only survive, but also thrive and just have a long, enjoyable life and grow a family. Mm. And do I think that vision is achievable? I I definitely do. It's going to take some time. It's going to take a lot of collaboration from different people, but I do think it's possible. Very cool. Thank you. Did that get your question, huh? Yeah. All right. Thank you. Do I go now? Yes, you are. Hi, my name is Daniel. I'm from LPS Richmond. I, I have just two questions. Um, how do you deal with the weight of your responsibilities as a, I guess, city governor or city council? And... How do you balance that between your work and your social life? And how does that work? Mm-hmm. Life, I guess, yeah. That's a good question. So you're looking at the burden of responsibility in these positions and balance in their personal life and social life. Okay. I'll give it up to you guys. Which one to go first on this one? Okay, you got it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll use a specific example of thinking about the weight of responsibility really briefly. A couple of weeks ago, um, we had a homicide in my district and, you know, Oakland has had um, a pretty high homicide rate, unfortunately, this year, but it was the first one that happened on my district. And Mm -hmm. even though, you know, there's nothing that, you know, I personally could have done, I felt this incredible weight on my shoulders Mm -hmm. in a way that I haven't in the 10 months I was in, at that time, nine months I was in office. And it really impacted me. And a lot of times we're expected to operate like robots. Okay, this happened. You move on. Let's think about the policy solutions, tell the community and move on to the next issue. But I had to really sit with that for a little while and process it and then put on a brave face for the community meeting, the emergency meeting we held the next day, for the peace walk that we held the next day, for the events that we held after. But it reminded me that I am a pol- I'm a political leader, but I'm also a human with feelings for sure. And the tragedies that impact my constituents impact me too. Even if I didn't know the, per- the victim personally, it's something that definitely weighs down on me and was a lesson to remind myself that I can take a pause. I can take a beat think about how this impacts me and then 
figure out a pathway forward and make sure that I am putting on a strong face for the community. But, you know, privately, it's okay to cry sometimes. <laughs> um, sometimes even publicly as well, if, if, if the situation demands it. As far as balancing things, um, I am grateful that on Oakland City Council, this does get to be my full-time job. Um, I am compensated, not not terribly much, but enough for this to be um, a full-time job for myself. I have four full-time staff members as well who help me with this role, just given the size of our constituents and 200 phone calls a day and emails from constituents in our office, everything from fix my pothole to more serious issues. Um, it's, you know, something that it's it's very demanding and can, can very much take up all of your time and energy. And what gives me balance is, you know, learning how to make sure I'm carving out that space for myself and my personal interests. Um, uh, I am a whole person entering into this seat, and I want to make sure that I continue to be a whole person with other interests, with other passions throughout so that I can keep that perspective. So, for example... Um, I'm also a performing artist. I do music on the side. And I, back in the day, I used to do theater. And it's important for me to continue to some extent to engage in this work because that keeps me grounded with the artist community in Oakland and makes me remember what the issues they're experiencing are and how I, that can inform my policy perspectives as well. It's incredibly important for me to carve out time for my own family because through thick or thin, they're going to be there. My partner, my, my, my parents, my loved ones, my closest friends. Um, you really do need to make sure that you're caring for the what people who are who supported you to get here through this journey and who are going to stick with you right or die throughout. So That's creating cool. that balance, those boundaries, learning how to say no, taking a breath and being kind to yourselves. And most importantly, logging off Twitter sometimes yes. and, <laughs> and reminding yourself that you don't have to be on social media all the time. Yeah. Help, help create those. Boundaries. Very cool. Thank you, James. We got just a few seconds. Talk about balance mm -hmm. in yeah. a few seconds. <laughs> yeah. So, so balance, it's, it's always good to just unplug once in a while, um, to take a trip somewhere, experience nature. Um, it's really good to have a group of friends who are apolitical so that when you hang out with them, uh, you don't talk about politics. You just talk about fun things and you go eat cool foods. I'm a big foodie, so I love exploring. <laughs> um, so it's good to have a portion of your life that's just apolitical. Yes. I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> yes, yes. You guys, you students, ask some amazing questions. I mean, simply amazing. I think what I want to do is acknowledge you guys in your questioning and also what powerful guests we had today to share from their life experiences. And they were your age not long ago, right? To share the real things and how do we make a change in this country. So let's give them and you a big round of applause. Come on, rock and roll it. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Well, you can go to our website, civiceducationcenter.org, give your information, or go to California Department of Education, type in State Seal of Civic Engagement. And it'll tell you how to get that in your district so that you can be recognized for the wonderful work that you're doing, the hard work you're doing, because you're doing it with peers. And sometimes people look down on you because of your age. But I celebrate you, and I thank you guys for being here. I really do. Thank you a lot. Give yourselves another round. Thank you. Thank you, man. Very good. Very good. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.